Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Back in the saddle and ready to ride, higher side chatters, doing the thing from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and once again, we're forced to address the many issues surrounding vaccination. Because despite the onslaught of social pressure, censorship risk, and in some cases, legal requirement, there needs to be some counterbalance to the aggressively gung ho coordination of monothought across our culture that vaccines are always and forever safe and effective that vaccine manufacturers with serious criminal rap sheets are God's gift to man, and the science is settled with no room for criticism. Even though countless parents have watched healthy, happy children regress to an autistic state days after any of the ever-increasing rounds of shots given on the official childhood vaccination schedule, and many more mourned children hit with the mysterious condition we call sudden infant death syndrome, occurring quite often, curiously, within the same windows of time. Add in this global COVID-19 vaccination campaign and you have the same situation. An entire culture waiting to pounce on anyone who dares connect the sudden onset of new autoimmune conditions, stroke, blood clots, or any range of injuries to the shot they were just given days or weeks earlier. To even suggest a word of caution can often lead to a tongue lashing from any good obedient citizen who might be around to hear you, and to opt out of this vaccination regimen has people being ostracized as social pariahs, scrounging for empathetic, like-minded resources, and labeled as a public health threat. Again, COVID-19 has taken this to a new level, with the skeptical and cautious ones stuck to deal with travel restrictions, being told to mask up without any end in sight, and in some cases even being told to find a new line of work. But talk about harsh side effects in any other medical context, like pharmaceuticals, and it's taken as a given. Discuss multinational corporations cutting corners and suppressing unsavory data in any other industry, and it's hardly even taboo. Or bring up the notion of personal freedom and civil liberties in any other arena, and you'll find very little argument. Across the board, though, vaccination is an oddly curious exception to our typical ways of doing things, with private corporations being granted oddly curious legal immunity and an oddly curious special court system set up to keep these legal battles outside of the purview of the general public. Well, these are the things today's guest Wayne Rohde knows all too well, as he's taken up the cause of journalism and activism in this area after having vaccine injury hit home in a tragic way. 
He's the author of The Vaccine Court, The Dark Truth About America's Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which has a newly revised and expanded edition hitting the market as we speak. He's also a contributing author on these subjects to many like-minded websites, such as The High Wire, and he also hosts the Right on Point podcast, a show dedicated to discussing your civil liberties, health, freedom, and more surrounding the vaccine issue. He's a light in the darkness, and I'm psyched to have him here. The medical freedom advocating author and vaccine policy resisting podcaster, the great Wayne Rohde. Welcome to the higher side. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that introduction, Greg. That's very inspiring. Thank you very much. <laughs> you got it, man. I try to hype them up, but on a subject this serious, it's sometimes hard to thread that needle. But I do appreciate you doing this. I had seen some of your contributions to The High Wire, then I got your book, and I started listening to your podcast, and it's a real pleasure to have you here to share the wealth of knowledge that you have on these issues now, but sadly, like so many people who end up in the position of being advocates of vaccine safety, it's because you've seen the dark side of all of this stuff firsthand, right? Can you tell people a little bit about your story? Sure. I often begin by saying that a lot of advocacy in this world is the result of personal tragedy. And it doesn't matter what area you're talking about. A lot of the advocacy that starts is people who have been faced with the tragic events or serious adverse events confronting them. In my family, my wife and I, we celebrated the birth of our twin boys back in 1997. They're now 20, age 23, going to be 24 in October. And our son Nicholas, at the age of 13 months, which was the first time we vaccinated the boys, they were a little bit premature. And then by the time we brought them home, and when they were 12 months old, they were just typical little boys, reached all their milestones, development, everything. And we took him in for the MMR vaccine uh, vaccination at 13 months. And Nicholas had a severe reaction to it. And he was screaming, you know, of course, kids are going to scream when they get punched with a needle. But his screams were going on for several hours. And he started to arch his back. And the doctor says, I'll just take him home and give him a little bit of Tylenol once again, is, is that we found out a few years later that Tylenol is the worst thing to give to a child, especially dealing with vaccination. Hmm. The body, especially an infant, is trying to absorb the ingredients of the vaccination and try to detox or get rid of the toxic ingredients. And Tylenol actually prevents the body or retards the body from doing so. So basically what we've been telling and, and a lot of people around the world is, is that never give Tylenol to an infant child. Never. It is probably one of the worst medical ingredients or drugs to give to a child. But he continued to have suffer from the MMR vaccine. And over the next couple of weeks, we would get a lot of his temperature spikes would go up, and then we'd bring him back down. He'd go from constipation to diarrhea, vomiting, spitting, not much of an appetite. And that settled down after a couple of weeks. 
we didn't know really what was going on, but we were constantly on the phone with the doctor. The pediatrician says, okay, everything looks fine. Let's just ride this thing out. But then we noticed a problem. He started slowly declining. And over a course of probably 18 months, he went from a child that was actively playing to a child that lost his speech, did not want to associate with his brother, a lot of different things. We didn't know what that was all about. And our doctor told us, oh, Einstein didn't talk until he was four or five. And we go, okay. But it just didn't answer the questions that we had. Right. It's mind-boggling today when you look back and go through all the medical records, and we've probably got about 10 or 15 huge, those banker boxes full of documents, medical records. Just looking at that, the doctors really don't know what's going on when there's a child having a severe reaction. We now know that he suffered an encephalopathy, a brain injury, and it led to his diagnosis at the age of about four and a half of what we call severe regressive autism. And that's where he is today. Hmm. He's nonverbal, lives in pull-ups, dependent on us. He's a loving child, wants to watch movies, wants to, you know, he's got his little toys but he doesn't associate with other people, doesn't know how to, he communicates with us because we know what he wants and he can lead us to what he needs. If he wants to go to the bathroom, he'll kind of get up and start walking that direction. We know what's going on there. He goes out to the backyard all the time, jumps up on the trampoline, but he's associated only with himself. And then, you know, he'll come and sit with us a lot, or I'll take him out driving around. He loves driving around in the neighborhoods, just looking, you know, at all the trees and the yards and things like this. So it's kind of interesting. But he will be living with us for the rest of our lives and we'll provide the care that he needs. So that started us on this journey. But the first part was not really vaccination issues. It was more of autism issues because I had to start dealing with it. And my wife and I started talking together and we didn't want to say the A word, autism. And we got a diagnosis. And we had a Columbia University trained psychologist in Oklahoma at the times where we were living. And she gave us the diagnosis over a series of couple weeks, we had to do back and forth in communication and some surveys. And she did some sit downs with Nicholas and said, we really don't know much about autism. Says, here's two pages I Xeroxed out of a textbook. And here's a prescription for Ritalin. And I'm going, what? That's all they knew. That's all she knew at the time. And it was insane. So we started digging into it. And my wife really led into the charge of digging why autism. And we found the National Vaccine Information Center, which is founded by Barbara Lowe Fisher. And she started communicating with them and getting more information. And she started figuring out that, wait a minute, we've got a possible vaccine injury. 
I said, you got to be kidding me. But I didn't know at the time because as a child myself, I only received a couple vaccines. I was born in 1960. Yeah. I've got a smallpox, a little scar on your left shoulder. I remember taking the polio on a sugar cube, but that was about it, really. We had measles as a kid and we had all the neighbors come on over. We had measles parties. Right. You know, we had chicken pox parties. And no one had any issues with that because the moms knew what to do. So we had measles. Hey, stay home from school for two or three days and eat jello and pudding and drink water. What, you know, what's wrong with that? Right. Yes. You know, so it was kind of the way things were back then. So I, I didn't understand now or at the time with my son, all these adverse events and, and the ingredients inside vaccines, I had no idea what they were until we started researching them and looking into them. And we decided, okay, we got to do something about it. And my wife contacted an attorney that worked in this area and sent copies. I mean, I spent hundreds of dollars getting copies of medical records xeroxing them at a kinko store at the time and we mailed them up and had to do it by ups in boxes and he got all the documents and says you got a wonderful case for vaccine injury but we have a problem you're too late filing mm. we could what says the statute of limitations was only three years from injury when the symptoms to when you file and you're already three years, nine months. Oh. And we go, oh, okay. So now we had nothing. That, what else do we do? Well, I got to concentrate on getting my son as best as we can. And we started working. We were living in Oklahoma. We started working with autism. We found out that, well, there was actually two specialists in the entire state that knew anything about autism as far as working therapists or working with them. And that bothered me. And we started getting insurance denials left and right for services that are being provided. And I'm going, how do I pay for all this? You know, we got several thousand dollars worth of medical bills here. We just started. And the insurance companies are saying no. So I started digging around and it was like 2005 and 2006. And I said, there's got to be a better way. And started looking at the laws of the state of Oklahoma. And what I found was is that insurance companies actually knew autism was coming forward. It was going to be a big problem because they actually covered therapies and services for autism back in the 90s and then quietly excluded them in their policies as people renewed them 2000, 2001, 2002. So they no longer covered autism services. But that's when the big tidal wave started coming forward onshore, if you will, in the United States and around the world of autism diagnosis. So I said, okay, I've got to do something about it. I said, I'm going to change the law in Oklahoma because this is not right because what will happen is if we don't address this issue you'll have hundreds if not thousands of kids in just the state are going to be 
abandoned by their parents. They're going to end up in the jails and they're going to be provided care of whatever form it is by the taxpayers. And it's going to be extremely expensive. We're not talking 10, 15, 20 kids. We're talking hundreds, if not several thousand kids coming on board and it's going to continue. Mm. So I went up to the legislature and I started doing some research and finding out that there's one state that already did this. That was Indiana. Looked at their laws, said, okay, I got to do something. Then as we started communicating, and this is back before social media really took off, you know, right before that. So all you had is Yahoo discussion groups and email threads. And I found a group in South Carolina that was doing something. And I found a group in Texas that was doing something. So we started communicating. And sure enough, Texas and South Carolina passed legislation in 2007 to say, we're going to start addressing this a little bit. I put forth what I thought was some good language, and I went up shopping, looking for legislators. And I spent the summer of 2007 with approximately about 30 or 40 different legislators, and they all turned me down. They said, no, we just can't do this. This will basically force insurance companies to go out of business because it'll increase premiums and people will not be able to afford insurance plans. I said, well, other states have done that, looking at it with actuarial tables that shows that it doesn't really impact when you look at the breadth of the insurance plans. Needless to say is is that basically Oklahoma is a very conservative state. And at the time, it was almost a one-party state. The conservatives had run the state legislature, and they were adamantly opposed to this. And me being more of a conservative person, I said, you know, it's tough for me to go against what I believe in things like this. But I did find a state senator. And J. Paul Gum was the guy. And he ran with it. And we started getting some traction. And then a lot of parents, a lot of families started coming out. It was unbelievable. And we were making a lot of headway, but we would get to the point where we could never pass the legislation. Yet we were spending ourselves about $2,500 to $3,000 a month on services for our son, Nick. That's cash. That's cash money. Every month we would pay hand over to therapists and to what we call paraprofessionals for the work that they did. They were getting reimbursed from the state or through other insurance companies, so we had to pay cash. And then we were working with our son at the same time. So it was an extreme burden on us. And other families were cashing in college funds, inheritance, selling up. We had one family in southwest Oklahoma sold their ranch mm-hmm. because they had two kids with autism. They moved into town, sold their ranch, and started trying to pay for services to try to get them away from the iron claws of autism. This went on, and we just couldn't make any headway in regards to insurance stuff. And we are broke all the time, and we decided we had to make a change. By 2010, 
there was, you know, approximately about 25, 27 states that passed insurance coverage. And we couldn't believe it, but yet Oklahoma was not one of them. I had some friends up in Minnesota. My wife put out some feelers with some recruiters, and then she got recruited for an IT job up in Minneapolis area. We said, let's move up there because they do have insurance coverage. So we moved up there and we moved the family. And when we got up there, Nick was able to get the services. And it's not handouts, it's just access to doctors. But they did have insurance coverage. So we had doctors who were able to take bill insurance, but we were still paying out of pocket for some things. Mm. Once we got up there, this idea of being statute of limitations still bothered me and vaccine injury. And I had to get back into it because I said, okay, now I got that issue taken care of, Nick's services taken care of. I want to get back to something that really was been bothering me ever since. And this is what caused Nick to have these reactions. And I had some friends in New York and some friends in California that said, Wayne, you know, you've always talked to other families about insurance coverage. Why don't you talk to them about the people that have suffered vaccine injury? So I started talking to a few and I got encouraged and I talked to an attorney who I got to know really well, who practices in this area and says, you need to write a book about the families, your interviews. So, you know, in the spring of 2011, I started doing recordings of interviews and I ended up interviewing over 285 families over a course of two years. And I started putting things together and I was able to hook up with a publisher, Skyhorse Publishing out of New York. And they agreed to publish my first book, which is called The Vaccine Court, The Dark Truth of America's Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. It was basically kind of a personal review of the program, not from a legal standpoint as much as far you know being a legal writer, but more just a layman, a common person's viewpoint, but also I included a couple interviews. The first book was actually about 700 to 800 pages, hmm. and it got trimmed down to 285 because it was just too wordy. A lot of it was legal process, so I trimmed it down and published it in the fall of 2014. And that's what we have, what I put out there back then was that book. And it raised some eyebrows. I got some nasty telegrams from the Department of Justice and from HHS and a few other people saying, how dare you talk about this? You're not correct. I guess I exposed some of the secrets and what was not supposed to be mentioned in the public square about this program. Mm -hmm. And it's not a pro-vaccine nor an anti-vaccine book. Not at all. It's a process. It's a legal process. Most people don't understand that this is one industry where you cannot sue for what we call defective design or product liability for injuries. You can, if you're a, you know, asbestos, 
or Vioxx for the pills from pharmaceutical industry, or if you have a defective child seat in your car. But you can't if it's a vaccine. Right now, currently, you cannot file a suit for an injury against you or one of your family members. Mm -hmm. People don't understand that. They still don't understand that. Right. Every aspect of this issue is tilted in favor of the manufacturers. And, you know, parents with vaccine injured children have my deepest empathy because it has to feel like you're stuck in a weird Twilight Zone episode where people get mad at you for even suggesting that's what happened. And the uphill struggle of actually having it acknowledged and compensated for takes so much strength that would be hard to muster up while also dealing with the consequences of the damage. It just really adds so much insult to injury, it seems. And the stories that you do have in the book are quite powerful. And the book covers just so many important aspects of this whole situation. And when I think about the debates I end up caught in, it always seems like this concession of, yes, some people will be injured by these injections, but it's a tiny fraction of the people who are protected from a range of serious diseases. That's the case everyone makes. Although the more I learn, the more it seems like the perceived risk of the diseases we vaccinate for is over-exaggerated. Like you mentioned, my dad says the same thing about when he was a kid, measles just happened. And then the real numbers of people injured is grossly underestimated. So it's really hard to even get a proper conception of the risk versus reward of inoculation. And it's just completely one-sided, but maybe with all the data you've gathered, you can help us get a clearer picture of the truth in those regards for people who have been conditioned to think that it's a necessary protocol, even with the prospect of some people being injured and never being the same again. Right. Well, when the act that establishes the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program it was passed in 1986. We all know that President Reagan signed it. Well, what a lot of people don't understand is he did not want to. It was part of a, a defense budget reconciliation bill. It's the only way to get this part through. And he had some major concerns and his vice president and a couple of advisors basically had to drag him there to say, you need to sign this in. The program started in 1988, but also this act also created what we call the VAERS system, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, which is going to be operated and maintained by the CDC. And that went live in 1990. This is the reporting system that we're allowed to submit reports of adverse reactions. Now, the law says is that doctors and clinicians are required to input if they see anything from their offices and do that. But there's no teeth to the law. There's no penalty. So that's why we find out that most doctors and nurses and clinicians never input or they'll decline. No, I don't want to do that. A lot of it's peer pressure. When I was talking to those families, I only found two families that told me that someone at the hospital or in the doctor's clinic office 
would help them file a VARES report. Only two out of the 285. I found that outstanding. There was a lot of reasons why they wouldn't. They said, well, a nurse told one parent says, well, if I do that, I could get fired. A lot of doctors said, there's no such thing as vaccine injury. I've never seen vaccine injury in my, my days. Well, the problem there is in medical school, they're only taught vaccine injuries. It has to have an instant reaction. Mm. My son had an instant reaction, but my pediatrician said, just go home and give him Tylenol. Most vaccine injuries, whether they're reported or not, take days, weeks, maybe months to manifest themselves. Currently, most vaccine injuries are autoimmune disorders in nature. Those don't happen overnight. So when we're looking at vaccine injury, people say, oh, you're just a bunch of anti-vaxxers. No, we're the ones that actually were in favor of vaccines and we had an adverse reaction. Many parents lost their child or their spouse or a loved one in their family. Majority of parents also now deal with vaccine injury, whether a child is wheelchair bound for the rest of their lives or is needing around the clock care or child is suffering from seizures or other medical conditions. I guess people don't understand it unless they actually know a family or know a person that has had an injury. There's very few people. And you're one of them that actually understands this area where you might not have had suffered a vaccine injury, but you know what's happening. VARES is a reporting system. It's more of a voluntary, a passive reporting system. But, you know, a couple things that people don't understand. The vaccine manufacturers are supposed to dump what they call post-marketing data into it. If there is any signals that they see or after the vaccines out there on the marketplace. We've had studies looking at VAERS showing that anywhere from one to 5% of all injuries are actually reported. So when you see 6,000 deaths in VAERS system pre-COVID, pre-COVID, does that mean that there could be 60,000 or 600,000 deaths? We don't know. Mm -hmm. We'll never know. Things have all changed now with COVID, but pre-COVID, these numbers were astronomical when you have, you know, 400,000 serious, and we're not talking soreness in the shoulder or the injection site. We're talking emergency room, hospitalization, that type of serious event or worse. And there's also some deficiencies. If you file a VARES report, and you had suffered seizures, you file a VARES report. We have no way to amend it and if you had continuing seizures or did the person pass away a little bit later on. You have no way. So you have a VARES report that says suffered seizures on this date, but we don't hear the rest of the story. Right, no follow-up. There's a lot of issues there with VARES, but it does give us some things. When you look at today's events, you hear, oh, CDC says there's 28 people who've had blood clots, whatever. 
Well, that depends on how you define it. Blood clots are defined in the VARES system, I think, eight or nine different ways. If you only look at one small, very narrow, yes, you get 28. If you look at all the ways that it can be filed, you get 15, 16,000 reports mm. of just blood clots. So we've got to a point now where I can't trust CDC. I can't trust the FDA. Oh, by the way, everybody says, oh, FDA has to approve it. Guess what? FDA approved Vioxx. Yeah. Tell that to the tens of thousands of people that died from that medicine. We don't actually investigate the clinical trials, oversee the clinical trials. We just take the word of the vaccine manufacturers and their clinical trial data so they can manipulate it. That happened with Gardasil. Right. The data was manipulated. Yeah, Gardasil is definitely a good case study. We've done an entire show on that one once before. And obviously, there are a lot of vaccines we could isolate as good case studies. MMR, of course. Yep. But if we look at the DTaP shot, oddly, this is the one that even when I mentioned to friends and family that we probably won't vaccinate our future kids, I often hear, well, maybe you don't have to get all the shots, but definitely get the DTaP. And I don't know why, but the DTaP shot seems to be this line in the sand for a lot of people. I'm guessing because they've heard how terrible whooping cough is for infants. But is it, though? Because the numbers I see seem to suggest that there's about 18,000 cases a year and seven deaths. Plus, I see naturopath websites that indicate whooping cough is easy to treat with a couple spoonfuls of turmeric and other herbs. So similarly to COVID, I'm feeling like there's this fear of a hypothetical driving the vaccinations in one it's not clear how founded that fear really is when the ones hyping up the problem profit from the solution. And two, the risks of the shot are not even factored in or weighed against this very small number of deaths far below 1%. Is the number of adverse reactions less than 1%? Are we even sure they'd be capturing all the potential after effects properly? I doubt it. But for some reason, the marketing is extra strong around the DTAP shot. And I guess I would just ask if you have any thoughts about this one specifically. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of emergency room doctors will tell you that one of the worst things that they see with newborns is whooping cough. And we all have to understand that that is not a good scenario. But here's the issue. When's the last time you heard of a diphtheria outbreak? Well, right. Never. But. The conventional view is that's because of the vaccine. No, it's and tetanus. We don't have tetanus outbreaks. Right. The old adage that if you step on a rusty nail and you go to the hospital, they're going to give you a tetanus shot. Well, the tetanus vaccine doesn't work when it's, you already have been exposed. Mm -hmm. You know, so things like this. The issue here is that the DTAP. The way it's being built today, the way it's being constructed today, there is an association with what we call early onset epilepsy or seizures. There is a connection there. Now, our government will say, no, it's not because it's been debunked. They're using a study that was done in 2006 out of Australia that was 14 people in the study. Hmm. And that study, the Berkowitz study, inconclusively reached 
their conclusion that DTAP didn't cause early onset seizures and what we call epilepsy is when you get it if someone's having two or more seizures within a certain period of time, like you mentioned with your family pet, that's basically epilepsy. They conclude that it, it doesn't cause that, but yet we have that all the time. We still have that all the time. And that's where science, they believe in science. Well, they said science is settled. It's never settled. We can show that it's an inconclusive study. It's only 14 people. Studies need to be several thousand deep. They need to be ongoing and over a period of years to actually show whether or not it's effective or it's dangerous, whatever. You know, I had my conversation the other night with my wife about if you were going to vaccinate against something, what would you vaccinate against? And I said, the standalone measles vaccine had a pretty good safety record. But we don't give the standalone measles vaccine anymore. It's bundled with MMR. And Merck did a pretty good number on all the doctors and run out all the competitors. And now we have this MMR that's the monopoly situation, or it's MMR2 and then the MMRV. And it's causing a lot of complications. It's just too much for these kids. It's ridiculous. Now, a lot of the whooping cough outbreaks that we're seeing around the country are within a vaccinated community. Yeah, I've heard that. What we know why is, is that the vaccine wanes. It doesn't last. The immunity that is given doesn't last that long. Conversely, the immunity that you get from being naturally exposed and infected by whooping cough generally is lifetime. So yeah. you should be able to repel whooping cough if you've been exposed to it naturally. Now, a lot of people you know, have been exposed to minor versions of it, whatever, and their immune systems have prevented it and fought off the infection. But the DTaP vaccine, and there's even the people like Paul Offit and others, made the case that DTaP is not working against whooping cough. We need to go back to some variation of the DPT vaccine, which was very dirty and very dangerous. And by the way, that's what drove our country to create the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program was the DPT vaccine. But another thing is, is that this compensation program is no longer for children. One of the things in my new book, The Vaccine Court 2.0, which is being released today. Yes. Okay. 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 I wasn't sure if it was a full sequel or just a revised edition because uh, Amazon kind of lists it under the same listing. You switch over to paperback, it goes to the 2.0, you go to Kindle and it just reroutes to the original. So it almost appears as if it's just an updated book, but this is a full sequel you're saying. Well, not necessarily. I keep certain points in from the original book, but I added several new chapters I did revise the data to reflect because the data points that I used in the original book stopped in 2013. Well, I brought them forward to 2020, but I added several new chapters, one on SIDS, one on Gardasil, and then another one on this program has moved away from children and is now what I call adults only. Another chapter, which I'm 
really, really proud of is Ripple of Hope. It's based on Robert F. Kennedy's speech in 1966 in South Africa on apartheid, where he talks about the Ripple of Hope. And what I did there is, is that in 2011, there was a paper called The Unanswered Questions that was delivered to Congress in May of 2011 by attorney Mary Holland, who's now the president and general counsel of Children's Health Defense, attorney Robert Krakow, who's practicing in the MVICP, attorney Lisa Collin, and investigator Lou Conti. And they put together, they started back in 2008, and they put together a paper and they found many cases, actually 83 cases of compensated vaccine-induced autism in the program where our government says we don't compensate for autism. So I did the backstory on that. I talk about how those four people met up, what they went through, the harassment, the threats, and how they brought this paper together, the peer review process, you know, and publishing it, and then the follow-up there from what happened afterwards. And it's quite interesting and hope the readers will read it and enjoy it as much as I did to write it and interview those four principals, plus also a few of the volunteers that worked on that project. Mm -hmm. But since then, Lou Conti and I, we think we have at least 26, if not more, cases of compensated for vaccine-induced autism since 2011. Mm. Our court system is actually still compensating, even though they deny it. But the way they're worded in there is, is that in the decisions, they don't write autism at all. Right. And they're still in there. And you start looking at the life care plans. You start looking at things and you start making hunches and say, wait a minute, they're going to start paying for these types of treatments and therapies. Those are autism treatments and therapies. Yeah. And just the admission of having even one case is saying like, look, this can happen. If you're paying out even a single case, you are saying it can happen. You know, even though the perception out there is that that's impossible and it's all been debunked. Right. Well, it was an interesting is, is that in 2009, Lou Conti was sitting in his home in New York. It was a rainy afternoon. And this is what I call my Watergate the deep throat moment. <laughs> he gets this call. Caller ID says it's a Washington, D.C. phone number. He doesn't identify. He answers the phone call, and it's this guy, and he says, Lou Conti, and he says, yes, and he says, keep looking, and he goes, what are you talking about? He says, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of cases. You need to keep looking into them. And then that was it. He wouldn't identify himself and hung up. But it was a DC phone number. And you look at a couple other parts of it, it looked like it came from within our federal government. So someone in, they know something's there. So it was kind of an interesting moment. And that's what really pushed move forward even faster. We got to get going on this. Right. We've got vaccine injury left and right. And our kids are getting hurt, but then our adults are getting hurt, too. Mm -hmm. And that's, whereas when I talk about the adults-only chapter, it started with the flu shot. The flu shot was added about 15, 17 years ago to the program. It was approved for administration 
to children. That's the standard. Today, it's either approved for children or pregnant mothers is the standard to be included in the program. The CDC's ASIP committee votes, and if it's approved for children, routine administration to children or pregnant mothers, then it can be added to the MVICP as an approved vaccine. Then the injury started showing up, and it started in about 2007. And Guillain-Barre raises its ugly head. Guillain-Barre, some people call it the modern-day polio. And there's a lot of very, very similar symptoms. A lot of people are debilitated by it. Wheelchair-bound or having to wear crutches or, or walk with a walker, or even worse, some people are able to recover, but are, you know, once again, our medical community says Guillain-Barre, unknown origin, and some people are able to recover. So we, do, we really don't know how people get this. And you look at it and go, wait a minute. A lot of it is centered around the flu shot, some around the pneumonia vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine, the adult version of DTAP, which is Tdap. And that's where we're starting to see a lot of adults developing Guillain-Barre. And it picks up speed, and by 2012, Shoulder injuries started to appear on the horizon. People couldn't understand why shoulder injury. At the beginning, people think it's not really a vaccine injury per se. It's more of a result of poor administration. They stuck the needle in the wrong way in the arm, too high up in the arm and into the joint or whatever. But new science over the last two years has emerged that it's not just the needle. It's actually the ingredients within the vaccine into the bursa sac of the shoulder that causes the soreness. And then we have a government official in court saying, oh, this is nothing more than ouchy arm. Hmm. And that really insulted the tens of thousands of people that are getting injured because a lot of these injuries require surgery or therapy. Some recover. Most do not very painful. You might not be able to lift your arm up above your shoulder for the rest of your life. Some people lose the use of an arm. We had one gentleman who filed a claim that had to have his arm amputated because of infection and abscess. So it's much more than an ouchy arm. Our government is just looking at it as this is an inconvenience a little bit. This vaccine injury in the adults for serva, what they call shoulder injury as a result of vaccine administration, is now taking over the program. Between that and Guillain-Barre, you're looking at almost 80% of all filings in the program are a result of shoulder injury and Guillain-Barre. And what I've been tracking, and when I started interviewing these families, I started pulling in case decisions and court dockets of all these petitions that are what they call public domain. And now I've built on a database of about 14,000. And in that, I started seeing some nasty trends over the last four years. Anywhere from 93 to 94% of all compensated cases in the United States are now adults. Okay, so you got less than you know 6% or so of cases compensated or children. Hmm. 
that's really bothersome since this program is supposed to be about for children. It's now about adults. Yeah. And children are being discarded. One, they don't allow petitions to be filed for SIDS. We don't allow the DTAP injuries as far as they will shoot those down and RB dismiss them for early onset of seizures or epilepsy. Most of your Gardasil injuries, if they're serious, are going to be dismissed. If it's what they call premature ovarian failure or sterility in young girls, and they won't know it until they get to be where they want to start having families. And that could be anywhere from 10 to 12 years after they get the initial vaccine. Right. They won't be able to have a case. And right along these lines, I had copied this down from your book regarding the DTaP vaccine, but you say, with the Macintosh study, the authors concluded that there was no rational basis for withdrawing the DTaP immunization for fear of causing Dravet syndrome or entering the brain by direct or presumed immune medicated mechanism. And according to this Macintosh study, they concluded that it does not matter whether or not the vaccine triggered an earlier onset of Dravet syndrome as they were going to get it sooner or later. And for context, they were trying to brush off concerns of what was happening with the DTaP vaccine injury. And they were saying, well, some kids have this certain gene and this gene mutation causes Dravet syndrome and whether or not the vaccine triggers it isn't important because they were going to get it anyway. And so those aren't injuries that we're going to blame the vaccine for. And we're not going to compensate for those because it's something different. Meanwhile, like it's not like they test babies for all these possible reactions or, or genes before they just start injecting them. And I just thought that was a, another log on the fire of trying to skirt the issue or deflect real damage and say, well, it's something else. Well, Greg, it's not just a log on the fire. It might be a cord of wood, <laughs> a whole pickup truck. What you touch base with, and let me elaborate a little bit on it. It's a French syndrome. Dervais is the guy that came up with it. Gotcha. But, you know, Dervet, Dervais. The issue is, is that there is a gene mutation the SCN1A gene, supposedly there's mutation that this Berkovich study says is that if these people have it, if these kids have it, they're going to have early onset of epilepsy and seizures. It doesn't matter whether it's a vaccine or anything else. They're going to develop seizures and epilepsy. That's this 14 people. Well, what the inside the study is, is that only 11 of the 14 actually had this gene mutation. So it's not conclusive. Nor is it conclusive that if you look at large numbers of those who have that gene mutation, will they all develop epilepsy and seizures? We know now that that is false too. So, the thinking was is that if you had Dervais syndrome, it doesn't matter. You're going to develop epilepsy and seizures, which is now false. Hmm. But they used it as saying, okay, when the program has four levels of adjudication and appeals, the first level is the special masters. 
and you have your attorney and DOJ represents the government and you hash it out there. If you don't like it or the government doesn't like the decision, you can appeal to the second level, which is the Court of Federal Claims, which is in DC. And it's the only place where you can sue, personally sue the federal government. That's where tax court, all the IRS issues, all the VA issues are settled, all the Medicaid, Medicare issues are settled. And that's where the MVICP, and they can review it. If you don't like that decision, you can then appeal up to what we call the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a three judge panel. And that's in DC and they can review and make their opinions and you can make your argument with your attorney and then they can develop their orders or opinions. And then the fourth step is the US Supreme Court. Well, when you go to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, this is a dangerous move because this is where precedent law is set, meaning it can be written in stone. And what happened was in these Dervais syndrome cases, there was a case, the Darabu case, a young girl out of Florida. They appealed up to the Federal Circuit. One of the requirements that was done in the regular case is, is that they, she got tested for the Dervais syndrome and shown she was positive for this gene mutation. So the Federal Circuit ruled that the government can force, get this, can force people to be tested prior to filing a petition for Dervais syndrome. Mm. So now you're compelled, if you, Greg, you and your wife have a child and you think you have an injury, and I'm just taking it as an example here, sure. from a DTaP vaccine, before you file, the government's gonna say, please, you're compelled. If you're gonna continue, you're gonna take this test. You're gonna to have to have this genetic test done. Currently, I think it's about six to $700 to do the test. And if it comes back positive, your case will be dismissed. Wow. That's the current setting. Here's the problem. That's been in place since 2007. A couple of years ago, there was a case that came forth on another issue, but DTaP was the vaccine in a case in Oliver versus HHS. And it got up to the federal circuit and the judges questioned and said, wait a minute, science is not settled. And Judge Newman, she's an interesting judge. Judge Newman is the one that questioned the government's position and said, the science is not settled. We now have, because in the briefs, the petitioner filed where new studies have shown that those who have the Dervais syndrome are not necessarily doomed to get early onset of epilepsy and seizures. You cannot rely on that. We no longer can use that as a marker and say, this is what's going to happen. But they went ahead, the judge panel voted against the petitioner, Newman abstained, but the other two judges voted against the petitioner. We know those studies exist. We know the science is not settled and it's evolving and we need to proceed. But this is the way the system is. And it's maddening that 
currently, right now, you bring a case of DTaP causing seizures, you will not be successful. Mm. So what that happens is, is that these attorneys that represent the petitioners, their fees get paid for by the program. There's a trust fund that pays compensation, but it also pays for medical experts and attorney fees. They're not going to bring these cases forward either because the special masters are going to say, wait a minute, you're wasting our time. You brought a case that doesn't have any reasonable basis. Therefore, your three or $4,000 that you invested in the markup of the case and getting it ready and filing and everything else and obtaining the medical records, those costs, we're not going to reimburse you for. So you see this aggressive screening that's being done by attorneys. Mm -hmm. on these types of cases saying, you know, all these petitioners or people coming forth say, hey, my son was injured or my daughter was injured. They're going to say, sorry, can't help you. Wow. And nothing can be done. It's maddening. But that's just detail. Yeah. You got SIDS. You got Gardasil issues. Gardasil, yes, you can get compensated for certain things, but not for the debilitating ones like POTS and premature ovarian failure and all these other major issues because they don't want those to be, you know, like this. If you don't mind, can I switch gears and move into SIDS? This is something that really is mind-boggling. Absolutely. SIDS is something I definitely plan to get into with you. Even the name Sudden Infant Death Syndrome shows that Western medicine is sort of stumped. Of course, they would never make this connection, but in my mind, it's not that big of a leap that we should be looking at the slew of injections they get right around the time that that typically occurs. But I'll be quiet and let you give it to us. What went into this new SIDS chapter that you added? So SIDS is kind of a difficult chapter because with children, when they get vaccinated, we normally get several vaccines at one time, maybe all in a combo shot or two or three containing seven or eight different vaccines and different ingredients. So when you have an injury, it's going to be difficult to find out which vaccine or combination of vaccines actually caused the injuries. And that's why they're very difficult to adjudicate. Whereas adults only have one or two at a time. You get a flu shot or you, you might get a Tdap booster and that might be it. Now with SIDS, it's because we see a lot of Kids that maybe on their three month or six month visits, you know, well baby visits, you get two or three different vaccines. Maybe at the day of birth, they'll get the Hep B, which is just asinine why we do this. So you have these conditions. Now, in the beginning, the program was compensating SIDS cases left and right. Hmm. And they were paying families the maximum benefit for death, which is up to $250,000. And that happened, you know, in the course of the early 90s and through the late 90s. And then the program switched gears and it became more difficult. By the mid-2000s, it came extremely difficult to seek compensation. And I think the last compensated case was in 2011 for some type of SIDS. Mm -hmm. But the way it works is that the way these petitions are filed is that you'll see 
baby was vaccinated, bring him home crying or went to sleep. Parents go in to check on him three or four hours later and the baby's blue. So they call the ambulance and, you know, that's your story or happened a day later or whatever. But it doesn't explain. You have a vaccine was the only thing that's changed. You yeah. don't have. Well, they're going to blame all the baby, maybe suffocated, whatever. Well, it's easily you can check that in an autopsy or things like this. So you had SIDS cases, and they started coming into the program and were fairly well compensated. But it wasn't until, you know, the mid-2000s where our government was really challenging them. And that's because that's when we started pushing a lot of childhood vaccinations. We upped the schedules dramatically. And then you had a case. It's an interesting case that was filed back in 2015. Boatman, the Boatman family, lost their child. And the original compensation or the original decision back in 2017, the special master ruled in favor of the family and ruled against the government. And they used a medical expert, his name is Dr. Douglas Miller, who has a theory, and it's well documented through his own research, that there is an external stressor has to be present in the SIDS cases. That's the modern medical, I guess, protocols for when they're looking at SIDS cases. There's an external stressor. It could be suffocation. It could be something else. Douglas Miller is opined that vaccination is an external stressor, which he's very credible science and research, but it's his own research and science behind it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he uses that. The special master says, yes, the government didn't want that. You could tell right away. And they went to what they call judge shopping. They appealed it up to the federal court of claims, got the right, judge to say no and reverse that decision so the boatman family appealed that decision up to the federal circuit court of appeals one step below the supreme court in the oral argument now the oral argument is where you have your attorney and the government's attorney and they argue for 20 to 25 minutes a piece to a three panel judge or judge panel, mm -hmm. and the government's argument. Now, this is where I found really remarkable is that, and I'm paraphrasing, it said, your honors, if you compensate the parents in this case, what will happen is, is that many parents will, will no longer vaccinate their kids. That was their argument. Huh. Nothing about science, nothing about vaccine injury or whatever. It's just bad PR, they said. That's right. That's exactly right. And the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the government and denied the petitioner compensation. So now the only thing left for them to do is appeal to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court will not pick that up. They're not going to touch that. Mm-hmm. So that's where it stood. So basically that froze all new petitions. There's attorneys that said, no, I can't take anymore because the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals has already spoken. It's precedent setting like this. Mm -hmm. 
but it was based on this one scientist's research, basically looking at different cases. Well, there was a different angle that still could be approached, and there was another case, it was the Nunez-Diaz case. They had autopsy slides. They actually had specimen slides showing what actually happened to the medulla, which is the back part of your brain down by your neck, and all the what happened to that when the vaccines exposed, you know, cytokine and storms and all this stuff that happened. Right. And that moved it up into the federal circuit because that was already in the process, too. So this was going to be very hopeful. We were very hopeful that this case would move forward and actually correct a legal wrongdoing. Right. And what happened was, is that the federal circuit looked at this and said, wait a minute, if we reverse this decision and award compensation, will parents not vaccinate? There is in the program, there's way to prove causation. There's what they call the Alton standard. And it's three principles. And the third principle is timing. Did it happen within a certain time frame? First one is about what they call a plausible theory that shows, can this actually happen? That's what it is. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. Well, they took it, amended it, and said, you have to have a plausible theory that's supported by consensus of the medical community. Uh. The medical community doesn't believe vaccines cause SIDS. Right. It's an impossible standard. That's correct. Now, that's where we are with SIDS. So the only way to prove is to do live testing. And we do not, in the United States, do not test on live children. Oh. Man, that's what's so frustrating about this is the people who want to trust vaccine science and want to trust Big Pharma, they hold these scientists and researchers on high as if they know everything about everything and can't possibly be wrong, but that logic doesn't follow. And it's like, well, then what causes SIDS and what causes autism? If you know everything and you know it's not vaccines, then you should be able to identify the cause of these other things. And that's where the logic kind of falls apart for me. Oh, well, right on, man. It is about that time. This has been great, obviously very concerning, but highly educational. And before we fully call it in, give the people what they need to follow up on your work, where to get your podcast, the updated book, any way to support you in this worthy cause, all that good stuff. The website for the podcast, and you can subscribe Wherever you subscribe for your favorite podcast, but it's right on point online. You can read a bio of our program and get a list of all the previous. There's like 32 or 33 previous podcasts out there. I've been doing it since November. And from there, you know, if you care to donate to that effort, you can donate to the nonprofit that runs it. There's a donate button to that website. My book is The Vaccine Court, and there's a website for thevaccinecourt.com. This weekend, it'll be down because I'm retrofitting it to support the Vaccine Court 2.0 book sales. If you want to buy a book from the website, I'll sign it and mail it to you. Otherwise, you can buy it in paperback form out on Amazon. And I think Barnes & Noble and a few others are going to carry it. It won't be in the bookstores. I'm banned from the bookstores. 
just the way it is. And skyhorsepublishing.com will also carry the book. You can buy it there. And then if you need to email me directly, I have an email address for people. It's Wayne Rohde, W-A-Y-N-E-R-O-H-D-E at gmail.com. Got any questions? And contact me there. It's also up on the websites and contact me and email me directly. Right on. Well, I have a ton of respect for the work you've done and kudos to Skyhorse for their bravery. I've had a good relationship with them for years now. And I also have a lot of empathy for how this issue has hit your family firsthand. Thanks for mm -hmm. sharing this all with us and keep fighting the good fight. Take care out there. Greg, thank you very much for this opportunity, and I appreciate your work. And yeah. I've been a fan for a while. I've listened to a few shows. Oh. And you connected with me. I said, oh, wow. I couldn't believe it. But uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Yes, that's uh, great to hear. Too kind, man. Have a good one. Take care, sir. Wayne Rohde, ladies and gentlemen, no stranger to controversy, but well-informed, dedicated, and making some very important points about vaccine court, the payout process, or lack thereof, and the extremely difficult position these families are put in when you consider all the things they're dealing with at the same time. And really, so often people are quick to say, oh, the vaccine autism link is bunk. But instead of arguing with them or telling them to go see Vaxxed, it's much more effective to say, if it's bunk, then why have court cases been won and damages paid for exactly that? And when I discovered Wayne, it really was through diving deeper into the people who work with Dell Bigtree and the High Wire, such amazing stuff they've been doing lately. And for those who don't know, Dell was seriously ill recently. He had to go in for an unexpected surgery. Not exactly sure what it was, but it was totally non-COVID, non-vaccine related. And he definitely needs his space to recover. So I started looking at whose op-eds they promote. And of course, Wayne is one of those few high-quality sources that they do include, and I'm happy it worked out. You might have heard me mention recently on other shows that I'm just not super happy with some of our over-the-internet interview quality we've been getting lately. I think Skype is just not sufficient anymore. Zoom, if you're just doing audio only, is actually worse. So I've been testing out a few different things. I didn't use Skype for this one. I used a new program that is actually made for doing what I do, and it's supposed to be far and above better in quality. July really is going to be a month for testing, and I'm sorry about that. I recorded Randall with a particular program, and I didn't really love it. Randall was as great as ever, but I didn't think he sounded any better than if we had been using Skype. And today, I think Wayne actually did sound better. And that's because I tested yet another program. And I also tested a third program on the next interview, and that one was a pretty epic fail, I'm sorry to say. It put me and my two guests all on the same track, and it was a nightmare to separate everything and reverse engineer. It took hours and hours to get it even halfway decent, but that's a problem for another day. Just kind of bracing you for that situation. But we will find the best program, 
A lot of these say that they can make it sound like you're recording in the same room with the person, even remotely. And long term, this is going to be a beautiful thing. In terms of today's show, though, I definitely expected to get to the COVID side of the vaccine issue much earlier than the one hour mark. But if you didn't notice, I was a bit preoccupied with asking some important questions about childhood vaccines because in about 100 days, I will be a dad. People who have seen my social media post found that out a couple days ago, so I guess the cat's out of the bag and I can say something on the air now. Me and my wife in particular definitely like privacy and aren't going to be those people posting all kinds of pictures of our new baby online. We don't really care too much about social media, but randomly she found an announcement template and we figured we'd just put it up there for the old friends and family that we aren't going to really call individually, but would also probably like to hear the news and know what's going on. So when I recorded this, I didn't know that it would be the first show after my wife decided to rip the band-aid off that little secret, but it worked out because now it's all very on theme. And with such an announcement means, of course, I'm getting all kinds of unsolicited advice on vaccines from friends and family, not listeners. And even though these people know me as conspiracy guy, I guess they just never thought it through on what that really meant. Because they're acting quite surprised at our position, but it's important to me to have good information and good responses when these things come up. I'm super lucky that my wife and I agree on this stuff. It would really suck to be butting heads on something with a pregnant wife when it's so important and the stakes are so high. And I'm so thankful to have you guys, really. So many of you have written me and commented on the Plus site and been very open about your experiences just because I've made a few passing comments that the only thing that gives me a little pause around the vaccine issue is that I don't really know examples of unvaccinated kids. I think I said that with Andy Wakefield. And it's true. I know like two parents who have had the balls to say no. One I don't think was really much of a conscious decision, but just one of those backwoods kinds of things. (laughs) And so I know one set of parents who made a conscious decision, and that's not exactly a sample size that gives me a lot of confidence. But the kids are as healthy as can be. One is like eight years old and Knows how to clean and defeather a chicken. Pretty badass little guy, actually. But because of this network of listeners, I've heard from dozens of people who had the balls to go with nature, and the reports have all been very positive. People talk about the robust health of their kids, their kids being fast learners. Some have been pretty open about vaccine damage, too, comparing kids in the same family. It's sad, and it's hard to do that kind of thing, But it's also super valuable information for people who have that part of their life coming up and need to make a difficult decision. We know what we're going to do. It's not really difficult for us, but I still have weird thoughts like, okay, for example, one of my big questions would be about natural immunity. We know it's better, stronger, it lasts longer, and a bout of one illness can create a broader immunity to similar-ish things. We also know that aspects of our immunity portfolio, let's say, even get passed down from mother to child. So you look at me and my wife, and we've been vaccinated to the fullest childhood schedule. If we don't vaccinate our kids, 
Will they have a tougher time because they're not getting the same immunity portfolio passed on from their already compromised parents? And now their immune system will have to navigate all this with more difficulty because the process has already been tampered with? Does that make sense? <laughs> I mean, I trust the natural process, but I can't help what's already happened. It's not the kind of thing that changes our minds, but it is a thought that I have, and we try to think things through from every angle. Which is what's so weird about the archetype of the anti-vaxxer. The reality is, people who have vaccine hesitancy are the ones who have done the most research, the ones who are most familiar with the track records and moral standings of these manufacturers. With all the pressure that is put on these people, it's not a decision that you come to lightly. It's not an anti-science position either, because it's a position based on the available data if you dig far enough to actually access it. Industry consensus is not the same as scientific consensus. Many bright and highly educated people I could probably never get to come on this show are also vaccine hesitant, which is why the high wire is so great. The resources they present are so highly credentialed, it's crazy that a person wouldn't take them seriously. But kudos to Wayne for handling everything he's been through and pushing forward to be this advocate who wrote this super important book. Not an easy thing to do anyway, but now with an updated and expanded version out there, get it from him and he'll sign it for you, which is awesome to me. In this era of digital, mass-produced everything, I love that maybe 20% of the books I keep on my shelf are actually signed. People try to get autographs from actors they run into drunk in a Vegas elevator because they were good in a movie or two. But Wayne and a lot of these authors are true heroes doing much more difficult work. And those are the interactions and autographs that have value to me. And I'm sure a lot of you guys would agree with that. He was also brave enough to drop his email in the interview, so definitely show him some support. And now you also know I've been a bit more pushy with my pitch for Plus in the past six months than really any other time previously. I'm sure it's annoying. I never wanted to be that guy. But I got a kid on the way, so I need every $8 subscription I can get. We don't know if it'll be a boy or a girl. We're waiting until the day it's born in the spa-like birth center to find that out. But it is coming soon, and if you've enjoyed THC episodes for a while, please just jump into Plus for a month or two. It means a lot to me, and you get to check out all the extra hours you've missed. So much good stuff. I didn't expect to feel this sort of fatherly pressure, but I kind of do, and I'm locked into this job, and so I have to ask and just trust that even if one or two guest choices pissed you off, or... I had a take or two on something you didn't like. Hey, I'm trying here. My intention is never to steer anyone wrong. And I think we get a lot more right around here anyway. And we present you with a lot more useful information and valuable inquiry than a lot of other places you could be. I'm not perfect. I never try to say that I'm right about this or that 100%. If you're honest with yourself, we spend our money on so many imperfect products and companies that I hope you can throw me a baby on the way bone or something like that. Poor choice of words, I think, right? But you know what I mean. And not a donation, just a subscription to more content you already seem to like. 
In today's show, the free and plus split is pretty much exactly where the childhood vaccine information ends and the COVID shot talk begins. We got into things like COVID vaccine injury reports and damages so far, what sort of extreme reactions we might expect to see in cold and flu season, long-term effects of other vaccines and what to look for in terms of long-term COVID vaccine damages, COVID civil liberty infringement concerns, the state of the vaccine passport policies, and a very important curveball, unexpected probably, was the parallels between vaccine safety EMF safety, and gaming the science in both regards. Really important stuff. So many vaccine injuries and adverse effects are going unreported with this COVID thing. I've heard of people being asked to sign NDAs and given 5000 bucks in hush money. I've heard speculation that when Southwest canceled all those flights, it was because they had all of their pilots vaccinated and those pilots were at a minimum, sick for a week and couldn't do their job. Or I've also heard maybe they had altitude-exacerbated thrombosis issues. And I don't know. These are just the rumors. How could I know? But we do know that industry, media, they're not being forthright about this stuff. So we have to ask difficult questions. We got to wonder. Of course, conspiratorial thinking is rampant online. We don't have any trust in government or industry, and for good reason. That is what's driving conspiratorial thinking. But they never talk about that. They act like it's some random, unexplainable phenomenon that people are skeptical of anything that comes from the top down. But you guys know this. What am I telling you for? <laughs> Thanks again to Wayne. Thanks again to you guys for sticking with me on this long and winding road. Thanks to everyone who said kind things and congratulations on the baby announcement post. Made my wife feel very happy and fortunate as well. And thanks to all the plus people that helped me sleep through the night while I still can. I'm super fortunate and super aware of how fortunate I've been. Good luck to you guys out there. I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, data deniers, vaccine suppliers, and biased science liars. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke Listen to the cast We shine a shiny spotlight Put criminals on blast The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance We're looking for the answers to questions never asked So we come to the Carwood for the higher side chats The pinstripe men of morning and families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance
involved in shady business. We try to get a glance. We're working on the numbers. Resistance must advance. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance.